Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to go through practical of ignorance and negligence. We're going to talk a lot about what is the risk reward of certain activities? How do we determine if something is risky or high reward? So I hope this helps a lot in terms of the overall confidence to make the right decision for our clients at all times. And the other big part is looking through the module. So we have a whole module on this on our website, phpodcast.com under curriculum in our coaching section, which gives you a lot of graphics. We actually have a checklist on there, just things that you should be doing on a daily basis to make sure that you have a really good grasp of the subject matter. We really believe in this method called chunking, just inundating yourself with a subject matter for a period of time to allow yourself to understand, comprehend, and retain as much of it as possible, and then build into another module, which keeps keeps the sword sharp, makes us understand before moving on, and then gets to another topic that keeps us interested and engaged. Other part is we have a book coming out. So if you haven't seen on our social or on our website, we have Strength Deficit, the framework to leveraging concentric versus eccentric ratios to optimize or peak for performance. It's a book that I think will help a lot of coaches out there to understand how to create outcomes that is beneficial for either someone who needs to be great in space, i.e. eccentric strength, or someone who needs to be great in a very small or confined space, i.e. increasing concentric strength. This is something that will help a lot with, with track and field coaches, strength conditioning coaches who work with football. Um, we're going through a lot of different other areas where it might apply in a tactical setting or certain team sports like soccer and basketball. If anything, it's just a good framework to understand how to improve eccentric or eccentric strength. The pre-order available, the pre-order is available on phpodcast.com backslash shop for all pre-orders, which will be going through here for the next couple of weeks. We have a complimentary programs that we utilized at Army West Point in 2016 with our elite inside, aka decreasing the deficit, and outside the box, aka increasing the deficit, available for everyone that pre-orders the book. So we really appreciate everyone and their interest and their their just support. Uh, Also too, the book is $10 less than will be featured on Amazon if you buy it through the website. So uh, make sure you check out phpodcast backslash shop so you can get your access uh, or your copy of Strength Deficit. Without further ado, we're going to go through principles of ignorance and negligence. So now we're going to go through the practical of both ignorance and negligence module on our coaching curriculum. So if you listen to our first podcast, our principles podcast, we talked about ignorance is not knowing and doing. Negligence is knowing and doing. And the difference is if you do know and you still choose to do, that's a really big problem. You know, one of the things that we have to correct behavior or correct bad logic or bad thinking. And then if you don't know and do that means we need to educate you and we need to get more formal training for that young strength conditioning coach or that older strength conditioning coach that's starting late to do the better, do the right thing for the clients or athletes. So if you harken back to that first podcast, we talked about Mike's example of, could you defend us in a court court of law, Mike Boyle? And it's a really important question. One that We haven't had to face a lot, but one we should think a lot about. And it goes into this risk-reward continuum that on some spectrum, there's always some sort of potential risk, whether it's small or great, and there's always some sort of potential reward, small or great. I would say definitively, we want less risk and more reward. Right, I think that's the intent. 
I think that's the goal for every exercise, right? Any exercise we may or may not do should have some sort of some sort of spectrum off of risk and some sort of spectrum off of reward. And the ratio should be positively skewed towards reward all the time. We want high reward, low risk activities. I call it a lot high return on investment activities that we're always going to take steps forward, never backwards. I think that's applicable to certain, certain training session organization, microcycle organization, mesocycle organization, different models or frameworks that we use. Right. And I'll go through that in a little bit more uh, individual case by case. But as I start to break down risk reward and what actually really is the most important aspect of training, it's understanding the objective or goal that my objective to to train someone is to improve relatively speaking to what their actual demands or requests are. Right. So if I'm training an athlete First and foremost is trying to make them as resilient as possible, right? And the, the 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 debate on can we actually reduce injuries or not, like, I think that's asinine. I think it's silly. Personally, I really do. What's the point of training someone if you don't believe you can't change them? If you don't believe what we do matters, stop doing it. And I know that comes off as harsh, but God, what... Like, I, I've been doing this for 18 years, and if I felt like I wasn't making a difference, I would have stopped 18 years ago. Like, that's crazy. That's ludicrous. You know, I've had work with so many coaches, and I've worked with so many different people that either are disenfranchised or disillusioned or really just doing this on the wrong pretenses, right? And they look at it from, we can't reduce injuries, or we can't really change performance. And why are you doing this? I could tell you a direct story of a coach I work with one time, older. Man, I think he was just in a state of disillusionment. I think he was also um, doing this for the wrong reason, for personal validation or uh, a personal claim, you know, just whatever it was, whether it was financial or just honestly notoriety. But either way, working at USC and his comment to me was, the thing you don't understand is we're working Ferraris. You don't. You don't touch a Ferrari. And my response to, to him was, what if the Ferrari's got a flat tire? Do I not pump up the tire or do I not change the tire out? What if the Ferrari is just has a, a leaky gas, a leaky valve somewhere? Do I not plug the gut valve? Do I not fix the car? What if the, the Ferrari is running really inefficient for what I'm asking it to do? That I'm doing, I'm doing, uh, stock car races and it just has no horsepower off the line. Do I not want to improve that? Like it just seems silly to take that approach of like, well, I got elite level athletes. So, you know, just don't rock the boat. Don't do anything with them. Well, I want to make them more resilient. We got 12 games this year. I want to make sure that our starters are playing all 12 and we got three to four practices a week. I want to make sure that they're practicing three to four times a week for the next 14 weeks. I want to make sure that I'm doing whatever I can to help that athlete achieve higher level success within the, and that helps me. The better they do, the better I am. You know, I just feel like that's silly. I feel like that's stupid to take this approach of we can't make a difference. But going back into the risk reward stuff, we should all have that, that agreement that what we do matters. You should not listen to this podcast if you didn't believe that. And if you're around people that believe that what we do doesn't matter, 
just move on. Get rid of them. They're not, they're not helpful. They're cynics. They're disillusioned. They're disenfranchised. They've given up. They've stopped learning. They stopped growing. They stopped trying. Those are the folks that are going to be negligent. They're going to keep doing the same stupid things that they did 10, 20, 30 years ago and expecting some sort of very predictable result. But the truth is, it's never been predictable. You keep working, you keep tinkering, you keep trying to learn more, and then you realize, wow, that I have no idea what's potentially going to happen. I just know what I don't want to happen. And that's where the negligent stuff starts to go away. I know what I don't want. I know I want people to not get hurt. I know that I want them to make some general improvement. And it can go in the way other end of the spectrum of this like minimal effective dose or microdosing that wow, we have really no understanding of what's going to happen and we better do the least as much or least as possible to ensure that we don't overdo it. And there's, I guess in some spaces there's good, but those spaces were severely under, under requiring stress and, and an application of stress for our athletes and they're not going to reach the point which they should get to directly. But as a whole, what we, should, what we do with someone we should have some sort of aspiration or hope that it actually helps. And I think as you start to look at it, the one thing I don't want is for someone ever to get hurt with what I'm doing. All right, I chose to train this person three times a week in season while practicing four times a week and playing one game a week in football that what I do within those training sessions should has a, a po- should have a positive impact on them being able to practice four times a week at a high level, whether they're a starter and maintaining that starting position or they're a reserve and they're trying to earn a starting spot, that progressively from the beginning to the end of the year, that what I do in a training perspective gives them the prerequisite resiliency to practice for 22 periods, full contact, three days a week. And then when it comes to game day, obviously they're not getting a ton of stress there, but over time, that might invert and become more stressful because they start getting more snaps. That, from a training perspective, the bare minimum, most important thing that I do with them is not do harm, right? The Hippocratic Oath, from a doctor perspective, is first thing is do no harm. That should be our oath, too. First thing, do no harm. And it goes back to that risk-reward ratio. The reward needs to be so great relative to the risk. Do extremely low risk activities with extremely high high reward, you're probably going to be really successful. I'm just telling you that exercises with high risk are never going to be a valuable part of someone who wants to be a really good strength conditioning coach. And Mike Boyle will talk about it in terms of defending it in the court of law. And he uses some very specific examples. And I got some more, right? And I, I think we can use the way they're applied too. And certain exercises that are low risk that actually become problematic when we start doing them a certain way. So Mike will talk a lot about in terms of sledgehammer hits and hitting a, a hitting a hammer against a tire, right? Whatever the whatever the value that we get there, right? The the shock or the the perturbation that we get when we strike a tire or a rubber piece with a heavy mat a heavy hammer, um, probably not worth the risk to be honest. One look the wrong direction. One slip of the grip, especially if you're doing in conditioning, it's catastrophic. It's career ending. Like, right, there's no coming back from a shattered tibia. 
Like you're done. So in that case, can we create any other stimulus in the core area or a chopping motion without as much risk? Yeah, I can grab a med ball. You know, one of the things you'll see too is why slam balls or certain balls that don't have as much of a rebound effect are used. It's because med balls came back up and smacked people in the face when we were doing med ball chops. So that would be an example, right? Like if I go to a court of law and I was uh, someone smashed your tibia or broke their nose doing med ball chops with a rebound ball because they just simply didn't know any better. Like I know I need to do chops because I want to work that vertical vector uh, anterior chain or the anterior frontal or front line of the of my fascia. Then until I know better, maybe I experimented myself and I got smacked in my fa- smacked in my face too. Well, then I, I got to start to look at that more objectively, right? If I, if I was brought in as a character witness for someone who smashed someone's tibia doing sledgehammer hits, I would say, yes, you can do med ball chops with a slam ball. Probably can do some rollouts, probably do some TRX rollouts, probably just do simple planking to work that anterior chain. Just as, I'm just telling you, you could. Or you want to keep your ribs down and your pelvis up while creating stress between your, and your rectus abdominis, maybe your external internal obliques and your, your transverse abdominis. Yeah, you, you, there's a lot of ways to do that. I can do dead bugs, I can do planks, I can do rollouts, I can do a whole bunch of exercises that are not nearly as risky. But then we look at something along the lines of, you know, quote unquote, functional activities, right? We can look at someone doing uh, a pull-up in such a high volume and potentially adding stuff like a weighted vest for someone who can't do a pull-up in the first place. So we're adding external load and we're adding high volume leading to, oh, wow, I need to find a strategy to be this successful here and start to use more momentum-based stuff. And someone's like, oh, man, I got to do 100 pull-ups and I can't do one. What are they supposed to do? Oh, wow, there's a way you can like create momentum and start to roll through this by just creating this massive arcing motion. And if anyone like still, still shot at someone doing a momentum-based pull-up, and just looked at it from the side angle and said, wow, that person has massive lordosis going on there. And they're creating this massive whip effect on their spinal segment. And then we're going to pair that up with potentially exercises that create a lot of compression. And our only strategy is to essentially create this anterior tilt lumbar lordosis and start to create a lot of of this stretch on the anterior chain again to create this whip effect so they can get all the way up and over the bar multiple times. How about we just do less pull-ups? What a novel thought. Oh, I got to wear this special strap over my hand to be able to handle that much volume because I'm going to rip my hands apart if I do. How about we organically develop skin on or calluses on our hands just from time vested to be able to get to the point to do that much volume of pull-ups. Like instead of thinking they got to fit into this predetermined number, how about we progress them up? And there's a principle called progression or progressive overload that we can use here. That I'm not going to throw someone into doing 100 pull-ups and tell them, well, the only way you're going to be able to do this, use the strategy that creates massive lordosis, this huge whip effect will rip your hands apart and maybe potentially put you in this part where you have this false sense of stability, where you're lightly holding onto the bar to create this swinging effect. And how many times that we see a video of someone letting go of the bar mid-flight and falling directly on their back? 
Again, if it came down to the court of law and I take this untrained person that couldn't do a pull-up and did 100 pull-ups, and you ask me in a character witness what I would do instead, I would say, yes, potentially eccentric pull-ups, maybe inverted rows, maybe a lat pull-down. I would have done all of that stuff before I even went close to something like that. Ah, it's a great way to work upper back strength. BS. Like that's high risk, low reward. Doesn't make sense. Same thing for like a rope climb. Ah, man, this is a great way to develop grip strength and upper back strength. Being 30 foot spending in the air for someone who doesn't know how to lower themselves down. Like what, what reward would we get from that that would be better served than being at least a foot away from the ground or in contact with the ground. You know, taking a, a, 200, a 300 pound person and have them do a rope climb because God knows why. And then them potentially slipping or not being able to hold themselves up at a certain height and they crash and land with their feet onto the ground versus doing a seated band pull down. I get it. Not nearly as cool or as, or as interesting. And it's not this like, proverbial like milestone that someone who's struggling with personal confidence and an identity would have this a visceral effect but the risk is so much lower or a seated pull down on a cable right so maybe you could potentially argue that a band might snap back if they let go i get it i get it but the risk we can all agree from being 30 foot suspended in the air <coughs> versus being knees on the ground and doing a pull down is a lot less that the reward is potentially more that or equal, if not better, for directly targeting a muscle group at a load that that person can sustainably hold with much less risk, right? Or doing something like Olympic lifting, snatch and clean and jerk. So if you ever look at USAW's manual, they'll compare the injury rates from world international level competition in, in weightlifting to all other international competition and and team sports like if your sport was weightlifting your chances of getting hurt are monumentally less than other olympic sports and other team sports you know they 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 go over that quite a bit usaw and i get it it goes into this context of you know this is an activity we can do for life this is an activity we can do with a large group of people and yes i agree i think if the if the outcome deserve, needs some sort of total body power-based movement, high rate of force development movement, that the juice is worth the squeeze, that the reward is potentially there, then yes, absolutely. But most times or not where it becomes problematic is when we take people who are not ready from a, a biomechanic standpoint where they don't have the prerequisite range, control, or strength, or biomotor ability, force, velocity, and work, to do some of these movements and we skip progressions, right? So you can look at it from a USAW progression based or uh, Russian is from top down. Oh no, sorry, bottom up. So you look at some of these part movements. So I work from the hip to the knee, to the mid shin, to the floor. Uh, you look at it from a, a Bulgarian perspective or uh, I if you look at it from, uh, from a pedagogy perspective, uh, and this is another conversation, but Top down is starting with the end movement and re reverse engineering what's problematic. Bottom up would be just building up the pieces to get to the end movement, right? So if I look at it from the perspective of teaching someone how to play violin, I play a song for them and they have to find a strategy to play that and then I figure out where the weaknesses are. 
versus I just teach them the strings, I teach them the notes, I teach them all the prerequisite things and I piece it all together to be able to get them to play the violin beautifully. Weightlifting is taking on this like two camp product approach, right? I think most strength conditioning coaches in college and team setting will focus on a bottom up, building up piece by piece by piece. And that's something the model I probably have adopted as well. You know, so progression for me would have been muscle or hang muscle clean, high hang position clean, hang clean, mid chin or below the knee clean, and then from the floor, right? I've done that progression quite a bit uh, where I felt confident about it. I can troubleshoot stuff. And while I'm developing muscle clean and all these other movements, I'm developing their rack position, their overhead position by doing front squats and and push press and overhead press so they can get more comfortable in those two end parts, right? So the thing that we learn, though, in doing this in a team setting, there's different rates of development. We have people who actually have experience with weightlifting, good or bad, before they get to us. And there's some people who are just really good athletes. They they are very incredibly kinesthetic or or visual learners, right? They just see it and they can do it better than you. But I think this gives a false sense of confidence that everyone's going to have that and everyone's going to be able to do that. And it's why you can't, you have to fight the urge in a team setting to go right to the end. Because if you start cleaning people right off the day, right off of day one and maxing them out, you'll start to see some huge problems with technique across your board. You know, we'll call starfish cleans where they start to shoot their feet out. You see this like crappy rack position where your elbows are pointed north and south as opposed to straight ahead. You'll see you'll see a really, really big kyphotic position for them to absorb that bar because they don't have the upper back strength to handle it. Man, aren't there a lot of places out there that are just throwing people right into the, the fire with a fixed load for a fixed amount of volume and saying this is a great total body exercise? So the the premise is if you teach it correctly, it's a lot less risky if you just throw them right into it, it's a lot more risky. And when people kind of like get on me about, oh, wow, you're just, you're just really critical of something, there's a reason behind that. They're choosing high-risk, low-reward exercises. And to be completely frank, I work with a lot of general population people. I don't do any weightlifting. And I love snatch, clean, and jerk, man. I love those two exercises. I love those exercises when the reward is outrisking or outweighing the, the risk. I love those two exercises when I can actually do a progression and get them to all a point collectively. Some learn faster than others, but as a whole, that our worst snatch, clean and jerk technique-wise is still not risky from a perspective. It's going to get value for them and it's going to get more value for others into other correlate or KPI things like sprinting, jumping, and throwing things that I generally believe in that setting it's really important but as a whole working with general populations or people who have no control over when they come and when they start and when they stop not good like i don't need to do that with someone that's not going to be able to stay or adhere to the to the program that i control i don't need to do that it's just simply not worth it but the other side of it too is most of the times most of my general population people just don't want to get hurt and they want to look better See you later, snatch and clean the jerk. No longer effective for me. Doesn't matter. What's it like making you look better? Like, like walk me through most training halls and go, dag, man, I really want to look like that person. Like, it's just not going to happen. So the reward isn't there for my clients. 
But the risk is certainly there, especially in the context or the environment that I'm in. So get rid of it. Doesn't mean I don't like it or still agree with it or still want to do it. It just means that for the setting that I'm at, I'm looking at it objectively. The, the risk is more than the reward and the reward's not that great to begin with. So see ya. But that's what, that's what knowledge has taught me. That's what training has taught me. That's what experience has taught me. That's what I really now have to look at objectively as a, hopefully a person that's avoiding negligence and still comfortable with not knowing and the Dunning-Kruger effect that I know what I don't want. I know I want people to be safe and get their outcome. If they want to sprint faster or jump higher or throw something further or faster, that's what they want. I just got to choose a bunch of things that don't have as much risk as much possible and get as much reward as much as possible. If they just want to look better and not feel like crap, like if they don't want their joints to ache and they don't want to wake up feeling like they got just, just meat tenderized the day before every single time, then okay, like I can do that. If I get someone who's got a lot of biomechanical issues, like they're asymmetrical, they got restrictions of range of motion, they have things that are painful, closing angle pain like impingement, then I don't do exercises that actually might exacerbate that. That the risk has gone up because of they can't, they can't, they don't have this baseline function. So I just choose very, very high reward things for them and extremely low risk for them. If I got a freshman in college football, I'm going to do very, very low risk, high reward exercises. I want them to feel like, man, this is too easy. What does that give them? A ton of confidence. I don't get validation when they go out of there going, man, that was a joke. That was easy. But I do get validation when they get the results that they want in a couple years to perform and play four, 12 games a year. And practice four times a week without having to miss a single day. Because the more time I can get them on the field and the less time in, the, in treatment or rehab, the better they're going to be. And that's a direct reflection of the decisions I made at certain points in their career. And I have confidence of that. I also don't get validation from them walking out of there going, I can barely walk. That was the hardest workout I've ever gone through in my life. I get validation by rewards at the end. What are my KPIs? What are my correlate things? And do I get that outcome? And if they get hurt in between there and I made the wrong decision, if they regress, I made the wrong decision. Or if they don't reach the levels that I think they should, I made the wrong decision. Go back to the drawing board, coach. Got to do it better next time. Whether it was the hypothesis of what I thought the training plan should be or the execution of that training plan. Either or. That the, the framework in which I decided to use. So I'm a high-low guy. I use snatch, clean, and jerk, and high-level plyometric and speed exercises for this guy. I'm going to use my concept called strength deficit, where I'm going to apply an eccentric strategy over the course of eight weeks to yield better results in counter-movement jump. Or I'm going to decrease the deficit to get that person to be able to more express more impulse in a non-counter-movement jump. But if they get hurt in between then and now, it was a bad construct. If I executed it poorly, it was a bad construct. That is what I'm looking at, that our clients and athletes have expectations that we're going to help them reach a certain goal. And as we start to go through this, I want you, the user of this podcast and out there kind of working, maybe potentially on your own, looking for some sort of guidance is to have confidence into what you do and what your goal is and what you know. 
you might not be exposed to a whole lot of different protocols and frameworks. You might not be exposed to a lot of different logistical strategies to implement in a group or a private one-on-one setting or even psychological stuff. But what I would tell you is what you know in this current point, whether it's a little or a lot, is what you can do. And from there, your objective when you're choosing exercises, protocols, periodization, it's to pick high reward, low risk activities. And the better you get, the more confidence you get, the more you can start to push towards the threshold of potentially things that could be in some way construed as riskier, but they're not as much risk because that person is either prepared or you're capable of going ahead and saying, this is not a good plan. I got to move on. I got to cut bait and move on to another exercise that this person can be successful with. But you've earned that knowledge. You've earned that insight. You've earned that ability to discern between what's good and bad based off of a deep understanding of this is helping the person that's in front of me or not. That if that person is showing signs of pain or discomfort or they're showing a little bit of apprehension, like, and I get pushing people past their comfort zone, but not making people feel apprehensive and scared. You know that feeling. They're looking at you, you're looking at them and you're like, just do it. It's okay. Like that peer pressure or this authority bias that we potentially think we have. And they're going ahead and doing that. Like, I I get it. Like we all want to impress our clients. We all want to make sure that we're doing the most challenging and innovative programs we can have. But I'm going to tell you the safer bet is to do something that they walk out of there going, I don't know. It wasn't that hard. And maybe you take that moment to explain to them. You're welcome. Like that's my job is to make sure that you can be successful today and then do more next time. That the first session you have with someone shouldn't let them, shouldn't make them walk out of there dragging their tongue on the ground and going, I've never felt that way in my entire life. What are the odds of them actually recovering and be able to get something the next time out of that? I'll tell you it's small. If you understand physiology, if you understand central governor theory, if you understand fitness fatigue theory, that that actually is not a really good physiological thing to do. You're probably inclined to not do that next time. You shouldn't. But if you build your whole framework around just crushing people on day one and make sure that they feel like they're inadequate or that that's the missing thing in their life and you don't change because you don't see those people back or you don't see those people sustain that. Like you got to revisit why you're doing this in the first place. Do no harm. Help. Make them better than what they would do on their own. What's the difference between you and someone else who just them going home and doing it on their own? Like they can easily put themselves in high risk, low reward environments anytime they want. They can do all those things I mentioned on their own. They shouldn't, but they can do that on their own. And if you enable and allow them to do that, give them this sense of, yeah, I'm a, I'm a trainer, I'm a coach, and I'm going to just do what you think you think you need or what you think you want versus I know what they need. You're no better than, than them. Like you're not bringing any professional level of expertise to the situation. Having confidence in who you are as a coach and understanding that there's consequences and risks associated with everything. And I'm going to make the decision because I know more and that's not, and I'm avoiding ignorance and I'm going to make decision because 
I know more and I'm not going to do it anyway, which is negligence. And I'm going to have this outcome that I want that's productive and con- and built upon what ultimately the end goal is, is to get to your results without getting hurt. So as we start to break down ignorance and negligence, you know, and you, you don't know and you do ignorance, know and still do negligence and looking at it from the perspective of the risk reward that when you're in your ignorant phase of your life, and I hope that doesn't come off as like, I'm calling everyone ignorant. Cause I'll tell you this, I have some sort of levels of ignorance towards certain areas. I don't know. But the difference to me when I feel like I don't know is I don't do it. I refer out. I try to get them to the right person or just help me tell them. I don't know. Telling, having the confidence of some telling someone I don't know is not a bad thing. It shows that you're honest. It shows that you're have a great grasp of what your scope of practice is or who you are as a coach and where you're at in your development. And the more I've done this and the more I'm doing it, when someone says this hurts or I'm sick, I tell them every single time I don't know. I don't know. And they want me to give them an answer. They assume that with my experience, knowledge, and insight that I have an answer on everything. I have an opinion, but it doesn't mean it's an answer. I know what I would do in that situation, but that's not something I would say is a very universally accepted thing to do. So I simply tell them I don't know. I am ignorant on the subject matter. The other problem, though, is now I'm an experience and I do know better. If I just start to tell that person what potentially might happen... If I start to do contraindicated things, not knowing what medication they're on or what what treatments they're on or what rehabilitation process they're on, and I still choose to do, then I'm on the negligence side of things. And that risk-reward ratio is now inverted. Reward is low and risk is high. Getting to that point where you simply say, I'm ignorant to the subject matter. I don't know what to do here. You can find someone who's better at that or no more has more insight on that than me is a good thing. I mean, the TPI, we'll talk about build your team, refer out. There's good and bad behind that, and I can go on that in a separate time. But truth is, is if you just simply don't know, you don't have to refer anybody. You don't have to say anything. You just have to say, I don't know. I don't know, and I honestly, I can't give you a good answer on that. So with all due respect... You know, I want. I know. I know you think I know a lot, and I, I'm very flattered by that. But the truth is, is that's not my expertise. I don't know a whole lot on that subject matter. And if it's just within our domain, if someone's like, "Oh man, I, I came across this," just simply go back to principles. Like if you come across a philosophy or an ideology or some sort of concept that's new or different, ask yourself: Do they have first principles? Do they have principles of training attached to it? We should all be very confident. And if it doesn't have principles, probably not going to work 100% of the time. So if someone says, hey, I saw this new concept out there that does this. Is there progression in there? No. Okay. Probably not that great. Is there progressive overload? No. It's random. It's ad hoc. Yeah, not that great. Is there specificity in there? No. Okay, not that great. Is there individuality or individual differences in there? No, probably not that great. Is there is there something in terms of like uh, diminishing returns? Like, you know, hey, if I'm not training for a period of time and I just start to overdo it, 
Is that in there? Yeah. Yeah, not that great. Is there is there a a critical drop-off point in there, like where we can evaluate whether this is no longer what we want and there's some sort of contingency in there? No, probably not that great. I can do that with anything. Tell me any ideology. Tell me any new concept that's trying to be novel or different or trying to rewrite the wheel and explain to me how they have those six core principles of training in there. And if they have, if we're missing one, not a great framework. But I can say with confidence, anything that comes across my plate from a training perspective, hey, have you seen this method from this guy or a woman? Does it have those six principles? No, not good. Not good. Not going to work with everybody. Not universally accepted. And I can say that with confidence. And people say, oh, wow, well, how do you really know that? Well, I mean, I know, I know on this planet that these principles of training have to be true. So I have confidence in that. Just like physics is built off the foundational science of what is universally true. Gravity will be true on Earth. Relativity, quantum, all these things are some way, shape, or form progress from a theory to a law that we know they're absolutely true, that they will happen. So we can build more intricate insight in terms of what is true and what is not when we start to evaluate new iterations and new science and new things that come across. Same thing with medicine, hormesis. Like that the poison, difference between a poison and an antidote is the amount. So not everyone should start off with the high amount. Titrate up. Don't go immediately bolus dosing. Like these are things that are absolutely true in better practices, better domains, better sciences. And the same thing in training. So if you're a coach out there and you come across a client that says, hey, I saw this method online. Does it have principles? Don't care. If you're a coach out there that's thinking, man, I really want to sharpen the sword here. And I saw this compelling person talking about this new method. Does it have all the principles in there? Uh, no? Okay, then you're probably not that good. It's probably not that good, just to be honest. It's really, really easy after you start to understand the principles. And we've gone through that now extensively at this part. And it's a big part of this whole aspect of, of just understanding how to filter information. But the other side of it is just a simple intuition. Is there potentially any risk here that I know I can avoid and do an exercise that's much less risky and get the same reward, if not more? Like, as you're looking through that, you don't need a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom to say, taking someone and putting them 30 feet in the air on a rope climb is a good idea, ever. I get it. Grip, gymnastics, blah, 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 blah. Being 30 feet suspended in the air is not good. Especially with large groups and people who don't know how to do it. Don't tell me what this person does or this extreme athlete does. The, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. If you're in a court of law, you can't defend that. If they fracture, if they shatter both ankles because they don't know how to climb down, if there's a like smallest risk of that, that's why I don't do banded pull-ups because I've seen it happen so many times people get smacked in the face with a band. Plus, it doesn't make sense from a biomechanic standpoint. Like, it's stupid. It goes against the strength curve. You get the most assistance at the bottom, but you're weakest at the top. Like, if you just understand simple physics, it doesn't make sense. Stop doing it. 
Like, I don't do band squats because I don't think there's a good way to calibrate bands. How many times a band... How, <coughs> how many people have super bands in their facility? How many times will it break in a given month? And you're going to put someone under high loads and under high speeds and do a shit ton of bands? I'm thinking that's, that, that's going to be safe. I know chains don't break. Chains are pretty consistently safe and never going to shatter or never going to rupture. So I do chains. I don't do bands. I get it from a combinating resistance point. Like it's pretty unique, novel stimulus. Just not worth it. It's not worth it for me. Doesn't bring that much value. So as you're starting to look at all the stuff that you can or can't or want to do, ask yourself, does it have principles and is the reward greater than the risk? And then you'll be fine. You're going to be fine. It's, it's super easy after that. And you're going to have a lot of confidence after that. You're not an elitist. You're not a guy who's just personally saying no to everything. You're just being confident what's what's true. And that's where formal training and education comes in. That's where having a really good insight. And hope this is just the beginning. Like you're on PH podcast, going through this religiously, taking everything I'm saying and saying, great, this is just a start. That I'm now just beginning my educational process. That whatever Tim is saying on this podcast every Tuesday is part of the equation. The real work goes into getting more resources, getting more education, becoming more well-rounded. Asking yourself very, very simple questions, but very honest questions about, is this the best I could do at this given point based off of what I know? After that, you get to the other end of the spectrum of the Dunning-Kruger of, I, I'm a lot of experience and I've been doing this for a while, but I still know that I what I don't know. But I'm confident in that. That's outside of my scope. I'm ignorant on the subject matter. I think you should find someone who's more competent or more formally trained in that. You're going to be golden after that. This is, to me, one of the most important things I teach to young coaches. Understand what you don't know, but understand what's true. And you're going to be really, really good. And we're going to go through that with our case study here next week. So... Hope you guys appreciate all this. Uh, thank you guys for your time. Honestly, I really, really genuinely appreciate everyone and their support. If you guys can get over to the module on the PH curriculum, definitely helps. Got the graphics, got the modules up there. I got all that stuff in there. And when you're breaking this down for yourself, try to do this in a, what we call a chunking method. Just saturate yourself in the subject matter. Ask yourself these questions. Go to Mike Boyle's website, become a member of strengthcoach.com do these things and just see Mike's take on it. Someone was doing this for 40 years, making no money for the first 20 just because he really knew this is what he wanted to do. And then ask yourself, do I have that logic in my mind and that insight and that wisdom? Cause it's not hard. It's not, it's not overly complicated. He's really good at making the, the complex complicated, simple. And you can really start to make some really good decisions after that. You created a checklist. All right, guys. So one, thank you guys for your time. I really appreciate everything. And uh, as we go through this uh, next module, uh, this module, uh, check out the resources we have listed on the website, as well as get on the case study and then make sure to tune back in next week. We'll have new P Neil Paduzzi in to go through what his take is on ignorance and negligence. And Neil's worked in pretty much every setting in our, in our field, right? He's worked college as a head strength coach, tactical high school, his insight and his knowledge is really good. And he's also a really straight shooter, which I think is, honestly, he's 
an underrated quality in this field. We need more honest people as opposed to people who are just telling you what you think you want to hear. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate you guys, and we'll see you guys next time.